What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester and soar and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust and sugar over like a syrupy treat? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? Langston Hughes. Hello, welcome. This is the Dr. Junkie Show, and I am Ben Boyce, a.k.a. Dr. Junkie, your host. And next week, I'm going back to prison. But maybe not for the reason you think. This time I'm heading in to teach college classes, and I'm kind of excited about it. As I say on here all the time, these are my people. I did an episode a few months back called My Thoughts on the New Jim Crow. And in it, I talked about my latest denial by the Colorado Department of Corrections when applying to teach college classes. I listened back to that episode before sitting down to collect my thoughts on this episode, and I was angry when I put it together. Rightly so. If you didn't hear that episode, the short story is that I've repeatedly signed up to volunteer and now to work as a teacher at the Department of Corrections throughout the last 15 years. And I've been turned down every time. Well, that's not exactly true anymore. I've been turned down every time except once, the last time. And in fact, I was turned down that time too, after jumping through tons of hoops and reliving traumatic experiences better handled by a therapist than by an HR employee. And that's what had me angry. It wasn't being denied. That's what the new Jim Crow is. So I wasn't all that surprised that they didn't want me. It was refusing to acknowledge that they didn't want me. And instead, allowing me, forcing me even, to jump through hoops in the hopes that something would pop up that would disqualify me along the way, allowing them to keep their hands clean. This was some Pontius Pilate shit. I was turned down at the background check stage this time, much farther down the road than it normally takes for me to be denied. I usually get shut down as soon as I answer the question, have you ever been convicted of a crime, by attaching extra sheets of paper to describe. I have a lot of convictions. But as I described in that episode, this time was much more drawn out. I devoted hours to applications and explanations, all to still be denied in the end. So I released the episode, and it gets a bunch of downloads, and what do you know? Two days later, I get an email that says the DOC has reconsidered their denial. No reason provided, and they want me to begin the training process which includes around six hours of online videos designed to harden the heart of anyone coming into the prison before they get there. Among other things, it described a game inmates play. They called it The Game, where they find any scrap of power that they can use to their advantage, even if that means stealing, lying, threatening, or even violence. As you might expect, I was not amused, but I do get it. More on that in a second. So the reason I haven't updated you, the audience, earlier than this is because I really didn't trust the email. I honestly thought they were just putting it off for a few more weeks, maybe waiting for me to complete the training before pulling the plug yet again. Or maybe it would be after the required integrity interview, which took place a few days after they accepted me. It consisted of yet another recapping of every bad thing I've ever done. They asked me to describe all of the crimes I've ever been arrested for in any I wasn't arrested for. They asked me if I was in any gangs. And since I have the word outlaw tattooed across my chest, 
you can check out the website, drjunkieshow.com, for a cool pic. They pressed me to reveal any connections I have to the Outlaws motorcycle gang, which is pretty weird. I don't think the Outlaws would accept a member who spells the gang's name wrong. Anyway, it was yet another emotional day, a recurring theme throughout this process. And after the integrity interview, I was more convinced than ever that they were going to pull the rug out from under me any time. But now, here I am, just a few days from my first class, and right now I still have the green light. I already put together a syllabus, and I even met with the on-site teachers who work inside the prison all the time. They'll be there to help keep things running smoothly, and they're all just as excited as I am. So it's really looking like this is going to happen. Now, of course, I won't be revealing any personal information about any of my students, but I do want to say a little bit about why I took the job. I mean, there are plenty of reasons why I might not have been interested anymore by the time they forced me to do all the legwork and still wouldn't assure me that it was even worth it. I really thought about that, both before applying to this job at all, and then again when the email came through a few days after my final denial. The one that said they had un-unapproved me, or I guess re-approved me? Something like that. I found myself thinking about the people I was locked up with, and the people who are still locked up who are part of my life. Jason, Dan, Rich, Chris, Roderick, and the tons of people I talk to every year as editor of the Poetry Project Captured Words Free Thoughts, which is linked in the episode description if you want to check it out. We're gearing up for yet another edition, so if you know anyone who's locked up and wants to contribute art, poetry, short story, creative writing, or some other form of creative paper-based talent, send it my way. You can find all of that information on the website. This whole project is non-profit, and just like the in-prison college classes, which I do make a small salary from, I look at this as a way to give back, both to the incarcerated community and to the head of the Captured Words Free Thoughts Project, Dr. Stephen Hartnett, who was one of the first people to believe in my ability to become what I'm working on becoming. So check out the incredible work at the website, or you can listen to some of my students perform some of their favorite pieces from the last edition in the episode called Captured Words Free Thoughts from November of 2020. I'll link that in the description as well. Okay, so where was I? Oh, so I started jumping through more hoops. I'm still assuming the entire time, by the way, that this isn't going to work. But I felt for a long time like I kind of belong in prison as a teacher. And prison isn't what you think. Even the biggest monster on earth has a story that would break your heart if you're willing to listen to it. I am one of those monsters, so I totally understand that it's easier for me to get that than it is for most people. But maybe that's my point. I hope I don't sound narcissistic or anything like that, because it turns out I'm not the only person who could teach this class. I'm not even the best person to teach this class. I do, however, have the ability to offer a particular kind of hope. The kind that says you can still do the things that you were told you can't do with a felony conviction. That raisin in the sun shit is real. The poem by Langston Hughes is called Harlem, and you heard it at the beginning of this episode. In prison, we're taught to smash those dreams, to drop them off, to be realistic. And while I totally understand grinding it out to pay the bills, punching the clock to make ends meet, this is a capitalist society after all, I also think it's important to hold on to our dreams. Like Biggie said, the sky's the limit. One last thing before I move on. There's an argument in the super woke community 
that these classes are elitist, that they support the status quo of oppressive policy by giving the Department of Corrections something to point to when defending themselves against charges of missing rehabilitation and service programs. The argument goes something like this, and by the way, I'm not necessarily against it, so don't hear me as snarky or disagreeable here. I actually agree with a lot of it. Prison is composed of disenfranchised communities, and that disenfranchisement begins long before most of us get there. It's no surprise that people who are abandoned by their society find themselves accumulating roadblocks that only get harder to overcome as time goes by. What was once just missing too much school becomes no diploma, becomes a decade of no job record, becomes a criminal conviction. And each step builds on the others until it can look like it was all the person's fault. Because prison is full of people who have been abandoned by the system, they're frequently less educated than Joe Schmo. Some statistics show that 60% of people in prison are effectively illiterate. That's to say, 6 out of every 10 cannot read at a level that allows them to function in a world built to accommodate readers. A world like our world. What that means is that students in this class are necessarily cherry-picked, and from the most privileged people in the entire prison population, as it turns out. I mean, who has a better chance at success once released? Someone like me? I think I already made my case just by using that example. Or someone who can't read, has no diploma, no job history, and a year of incarceration in the rear view. So if we are indeed taking the most privileged, the most likely to succeed, and if we're offering them additional tools while ignoring those who can't access college-level classes by no fault of their own, I mean, remember, none of us chooses who we're born to, then we are indeed in a bit of a moral pickle, but not one that I see as unsolvable. In fact, I think that equipping those who already have cultural power to recognize that power and how it works, I think that's a great way to move the system forward as a whole, and that's what my class is about. My syllabus is packed with those sorts of readings, and my lectures will emphasize power is an inescapable, always working machine that works to leave some people in a better position than others when it comes to affecting change, or protecting themselves, or providing necessities. I also think it's a fallacy to assume we can only do one thing at a time. The teachers who are working with me inside also work with other incarcerated people to help them get diplomas or GEDs or even to accomplish pre-diploma goals related to reading and math. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can educate some at the college level at the same time as we provide non-prepared students the services they need. And eventually, they too might well end up in this class. So I totally understand the argument and I definitely think it's worth talking about. But I can't go any further than that because I've been to prison, and all that 60% illiteracy, these people aren't that smart shit, it's just that. Shit. Even the people I met who can't read, or who can't read as well as I can, they find ways to make do. And many of them are doing just fine financially, both in prison and in the outside world. Literacy does not equal smarts. We all know idiots who read tons of books. So while I'm willing to acknowledge the way these classes offer valuable service to only a small group of people, I'm not willing to acknowledge that most incarcerated people couldn't complete this coursework at some point. That's bullshit. I'm certainly willing to listen to opposing voices as this continues to get argued out, and perhaps I'll even change my mind about it at some point. 
but not if it means grouping most inmates into a stereotype of unintelligent or incapable. These are some smart-ass cookies. Okay, on to the class. It's called Communication, Citizenship, and Social Justice. And it's basically a look at how citizenship is defined and practiced in the United States, which means it's basically a historical ride through the founding and building of the country. We're going to dig into the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the first 20 or so amendments, Caesar Beccaria, whose work was vital to the so-called Founding Fathers' beliefs about what government should look like, and then we'll look at how everything spun out from there. The Civil War, women's suffrage, the spectacle of mass media, the war on drugs. It's going to be a fun class. And if you think this sounds like a class for people who aren't smart, email me and I'll send you the content and the assignments. I'll even grade you if you want. You might be surprised. So that's the deal with the prison class. It starts in late August, so stay tuned for updates. On another note, I've already started getting questions for the upcoming Ask Me Anything episode, so keep them coming. I plan to sit down and record that sometime in the next week or two, and as I mentioned before, I invite listeners to feel free to ask for anonymity, or even to send your questions in without your name, and to feel free to ask whatever you want. Today is kind of a teaser, because I've noticed that some of the questions feel sort of unanchored, if that makes sense. Like, here's one, for example. What did you do to go to prison? Here's another. Why did you commit crimes? Great questions, but not really specific enough to answer. So today I want to tell a bit about my story, some more of the basic stuff, in the hopes that it helps you all hone in on good questions that can lead to some cool conversation in that episode which my partner, Dr. Aaron Boyce, will join me to record. Now, of course, I can't fit my entire story into 20 minutes, but I do think I can lay down the basics well enough. It goes like this. In 2001, I shot myself in the hand. I almost blew my pinky finger off. Actually, that's not far enough back. In 1994, I cut the tip of my ring finger off with a lawnmower. You know that sticker on the top, next to the engine? The one with a cartoon image of a finger being chopped off? It's pretty accurate. And as a 14-year-old, this was the first time I realized the world was objective, uncaring, totally predictable in some ways. If you stick your hand under a lawnmower, you're going to chop off your finger. That was also the first time I recognized just how much pain I was normally in. The healing was brutal, don't get me wrong, but it didn't really add much to my overall discomfort in life. I was already dealing with a heavy load, and the physical pain almost seemed like a complement to a deeper sort of pain that had been there all along. When I shot myself in the hand seven years later, it was the same way. The physical pain was bad, sure, but it was usually the mental bullshit that would wake me up in the middle of the night, and only then would I realize the wound also hurt. I tend to carry a lot of pain around just as a general rule. I certainly didn't choose it, but recognizing it and saying it out loud They've both helped me a lot in the journey of living through it. By the time I shot myself, I was already in trouble with the law. I was on probation for petty theft, and I'd just been arrested a few weeks earlier for possession of an illegal firearm, a charge which could have landed me in a federal prison for five years, given my status as a convicted felon. And just like any Yahoo arrested for an illegal gun would do, I went out and bought another gun to replace the one the cops took. I was addicted to Xanax throughout this time, and I'd sometimes get bricked out, as we called it. 
The nickname fit because I would often wake up days after I started and have no idea what had happened and where the time had gone. Almost like I'd been hit in the head with a brick. Clever, right? So the night I shot myself was supposed to be the beginning of one such bender. And things were going great until the gun went off. But since I was on probation and on bond for a gun, and since I knew that hospitals always call the police when someone shows up with a gunshot wound, I decided to wrap it up, go to sleep, and deal with it in the morning. I should point out that this was a 25 caliber pistol, which is the only reason my pinky wasn't blown completely off. But it was still a gunshot. The house was covered in blood, and it hadn't stopped bleeding. I clearly needed medical care. So I wrapped it all up in paper towels and duct tape, and laid down to catch some Xanax sleep. I woke up what felt like two minutes later, but was actually around four hours later. And this time, the first thing I felt was the throbbing in my hand. It was in line with my heartbeat. I cracked my eyelids and took a look at the bandage, which was already soaked through and still bleeding and it was time to go to the hospital. The cops did indeed show up, and they almost arrested me when I tried reporting the situation as a drive-by shooting. I was too embarrassed to say I shot myself, and too concerned that they might go raid my house and take me to jail. Incredibly, I wound up avoiding any direct punishment with that one, although I had to report to court to serve an eight-month jail sentence shortly after the bandages came off. By that point, I had already learned that I was the bad guy, and I knew it in my heart. The courts had told me as much. My friends had cut ties, letting me know how bad they thought I was. My family had backed off, tough love being what it is. And the police were always looking for me, either generally as a drug user or specifically as a suspect in a crime. The world told me that I was a bad person so much that I eventually just believed them and I started playing the part. That happened around the time of my first conviction, and it seemed to get worse with each subsequent conviction, as it became increasingly difficult to get a job, to escape the stigma of felony conviction. Okay, so I'm a 20-something year old wingnut, and as soon as I get out of jail for that 8-month gun charge, I got to work scamming and stealing, being the bad person that I knew that I was. I mean, good people don't go to jail for 8 months. It was jobs for stealing loads of cash, which I used to pay for drugs. It was crimes. Petty theft and credit card hustles were the go-tos during that era. Sometimes it was straight-up idiocy. I once stole a car and took off towards the country, only to realize I had no idea what to do with it. I ended up dumping it in the woods and walking home. I was a bad guy because that identity was pushed on me as soon as I started medicating with marijuana at 15 years old. By the time I was convicted of my first felony, I learned to just lean into it. By the time I went to prison, I'd already accumulated eight felony convictions and a dozen or more misdemeanors. At 22, I landed a job unloading delivery trucks and got busted for embezzlement, again, to buy drugs, when I changed the labels on some of the computer boxes. I had them shipped to a friend's house. At 23, a friend of mine was caught with some fake money, and he snitched, sending the police to my house on a drug raid. That warrant only netted them a few ounces a pot, but back then, in Michigan, that was enough to charge me with manufacturing and distribution, with drug dealing. In a weird twist, I pled guilty to attempted manufacturing and distribution, a plea deal which ultimately left me eligible for Pell Grants years later. That'd be the only reason I ever went back to school. By the time I was 24, I was mainlining heroin and cocaine most days. 
heroin every day, and a mix of fentanyl or oxycotton whenever I could afford it. I was arrested for something like 20 felonies across the southwest Michigan area in 2004. Most of them involved credit card fraud or passing checks that weren't mine, but there were also a few charges of car theft and drug sales. I was in big fucking trouble is the point. But again, the plea deal system worked in my favor, in large part because the prosecutor at the time continued to have new cases showing up on her desk every few days. And every time that happened, it would set the cases back to zero. Everything would start over. So instead of waiting for all the charges to show up, the prosecutor offered me a deal that would not only drop all current charges, aside from the three I agreed to plead guilty to, but that would also cover any future charges that came up related to the time between when I had last been released from jail and when I was arrested. I wound up with a one to five year sentence, and I served around 13 months before I was paroled. My prison sentence began in Jackson, Michigan, in the largest walled prison on earth, a prison so large that those locked up in it are imprisoned inside the outer walls. Five stories high, 34 feet from top to bottom, stacked on top of one another in a pentagon-shaped enclosure surrounding 57 and a half acres. It's huge. The entire prison can hold almost 6,000 people, and it's a dungeon. It was opened in 1924, 10 years before Alcatraz began housing federal inmates. So if you've ever been to Alcatraz, or if you've ever seen pictures, you have a pretty good idea of what Jackson Prison looks like. Iron doors, concrete cells, and endless angst. Some of the worst nights of my life were in that place. I want to save some space for the Ask Me Anything episode, and hopefully this small bit of my story has instigated some questions in those of you who are struggling. I also want to remind everybody that the book, Dr. Junkie, A Guide to Ending the War on Drugs, will be out in April of 2022. So keep an eye and ear out for that, and tell your friends. This podcast is free because that just feels right to me. I started doing this podcast because of my friend, Melissa, who was supposed to be the responsible one who would outlive me by far, but who ended up dying as a victim of the war on drugs around a year before I dropped the first episode. I still wake up thinking about the great times we had, and the way she helped me through some of the hardest times in my life, and how I never got the chance to return the favor. This podcast was all I could do. It isn't enough, it'll never bring her back, but it's something. I miss you, Melissa. Send in your questions, comments, or topics at drjunkieshow.com. I'll update you all about the class as it progresses, but I already know it'll be great. For those of you who've reached out with your emails in the past and expressed your support, I don't say it much on this show, but I'm a human just like everyone else. And it truly touches my heart to know that this work has benefited some people who need it. That's the whole point. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce.